DW, World in Progress. Welcome to the show. I'm Kathleen Schuster. Coming up, why Croatia is grappling with its abortion laws. If you don't want to go to war, you can have conscientious objection, but not if you are a doctor. We are choosing our profession, and we know very well what gynecology is. And how an Ethiopian artist is putting her own spin on traditional fabric weaving. I designed, you know, something colorful, something different from what we have seen before. So a lot of artists start contacting me to make them, you know, stage closing. Okay, Jen, can you introduce yourself really quickly? Yeah, hi, sure. My name is Jennifer Collins and I'm a DW reporter based in Berlin. So one of the issues that you've been covering has been reproductive rights in uh, Europe. And you've been to a lot of pro-life and pro-choice protests. But this past summer when you were in Croatia, you went to a pro-life protest there. Is that right? Yeah, I did. I was at the March for Life protest in Zagreb, the capital of Croatia. And yeah, it was in the city center, quite a big demo, about a thousand people. Croatia is a majority Catholic country. Did you see that in any way in the capital? Absolutely. The interesting thing about Zagreb as well is that Zagreb was kind of two towns that were fused together and the area is still called capital. And that was owned by the Catholic Church and that church has still got a lot of presence there. On the street I was living in when I was staying in Zagreb, I was there for six weeks, there was, um, you know, grotto at one end of the street, there's a massive cathedral at the other end. And, you know, when you're walking down the street, you'll see a lot of priests, a lot of nuns. And then, you know, I used to walk by a shop that sold priest vestments. There was like a window display. They changed it out every like week or so. There'd be a, a different vestment on display. I mean, I thought it was, I, I was really surprised. I just never thought about where priests got their clothes. I just thought they were given them, but apparently they buy them. So yeah. <laughs> so, so a bit like uh, for listeners who've ever been to Rome, a bit like that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, why Why was Croatia interesting to you? It's a relatively small country in the EU. What's the significance here of abortion rights there not really being upheld? So I think one reason it is important, and you touched on it there, is that uh, it is an EU country. So, you know, Croatia joined the EU in 2013 and actually just got the euro in January at the beginning of this year. And most EU member states do allow abortion in some form. I think the only exception is Malta. And like the trend towards liberalization of abortion laws, has that's kind of been the trend in the EU and in Europe over the past couple of decades. But in the last few years, and this is something that the women's rights activists and liberal lawmakers and medical professions that I've spoken to are concerned about is that They're seeing in some countries, particularly in Central Eastern Europe, a kind of move to restrict abortion laws. We've seen that in Poland. It's now quite highly restrictive there. In Hungary, Hungary has tightened its laws. 
And people are worried about what's happening in Croatia and that that could be a sign, a further sign of this kind of spreading. So Croatia abortion is legal, but it's just become more difficult to get. The other thing that, um, you know, when I was speaking to experts about this um, and some reports I've read from the European Union is that there are links between these various groups, you know, and they're trying to gain a foothold at these groups that are anti-abortion and they're trying to gain a foothold in other countries as well. So, um, so, so sorry, what you're saying is what's going on in Croatia politically is by no means isolated. It's not, yeah. What's going on in, in Croatia isn't isolated, yeah. My colleague Jennifer Collins spent some time looking more closely at the issue of abortion rights in Croatia. She talked to doctors about how the law works and talked to a pro-choice group about the lengths women are going to to access an abortion. But the first place she went was a March for Life protest in Zagreb. Hundreds of people streamed down one of Zagreb's main streets, waving the red and white checkered flag of Croatia and signs that say, unborn lives matter too. Some stopped to shout at the handful of counter-protesters, mainly women, standing to one side. They're holding a pro-choice banner, and a few of them are loudly banging drums. Suddenly, one woman from the March for Life protest defiantly holds her baby up high in the air to face the group as she passes by. There was like a Lion King moment, you know, like holding the baby. And a couple of people like uh, were yelling like, oh, I wish your mother would abort you. So I was like, yeah, you're pro-choice too. Yeah, they will exploit every sentiment that they have. We are not against children. We, are, we support women who have children. We support women, full stop. Whether you want a child, whether you don't want a child, we support you. We are pro-choice. That's Arana Juricic one of the small group of counter-protesters. She co-owns an IT company in the Croatian capital, is a mother of two and is also a brave sister. The brave sister started in 2020 to help women access abortion in the small Balkan country. On paper, abortion is legal, but in reality, they're hard to get. When the brave sister started out, they had a handful of people working with them. Now there are 60 volunteers manning the phones. They help women get factual information about abortion. And in some cases, they even accompanied them to appointments in a neighbouring country. Juricic was the first to volunteer with the group. She quickly had her first call. I was actually the first during the pandemic time who actually uh, uh, received a call from a woman in need and actually went with her in Slovenia because in Slovenia the, the, the law and the practice in getting abortion is so much easier and uh, easygoing. So yeah, it's unfortunate a lot of people, a lot of women from Croatia are going to Slovenia for an abortion. In fact, abortion providers in one small hospital in Slovenia, just a 15-minute drive from Zagreb, see about 10 Croatian women a week, even though Croatia and Slovenia basically have the same abortion laws. Both allow terminations up to 10 weeks, and even later in cases, if there's a serious threat to the health of the woman or fetus. The difficulty in accessing abortion in Croatia came to very public attention in 2022, when one woman was turned away by several major hospitals in Zagreb. 
The woman, Morella Chavada, was told at around six months pregnant that her baby likely wouldn't survive the term because of a malignant tumour. She had to travel to Slovenia for the termination. The case caused public outrage. A 2020 Ipsos survey found 81% of Croatians agree abortion should be available in some form. In 2017, the country's top court rejected calls from church-backed conservatives to ban abortion. But women's rights activists say conscientious objection laws introduced 20 years ago are creating a backdoor abortion ban. A 2018 survey by the Croatian Ombudsperson for Gender Equality found nearly 60% of medical staff and hospitals that provide the procedure object to performing it for ethical, moral or religious reasons. Gynaecologist Jasenka Gurich is in her early 70s. She has a funky silver pixie crop and wears bright red lipstick that matches the frames of her glasses. She's preparing patient files on the computer before the surgery opens for the day. Gurich has a private practice, but is not licensed to perform abortions. But she did do them when she worked in hospitals when Croatia was still part of Yugoslavia. Abortion was legalised in the country in the 1950s and was routine, she says. Every gynaecologist uh, performed abortions. We, I worked in public hospitals, so every day our head, head our chief, uh, told us, you will today, in for operation, you, you and you, for uh, delivery room, you, you and you, for abortions, you, you and you. We younger doctors, we were performing abortions under supervision of elder doctors. If one doctor objects to performing an abortion, they are illegally obliged to refer the patient to another doctor. But Gurich says that rarely happens. Patients are sometimes discouraged from having an abortion or are given misleading information by medical staff. For Gurich, providing abortions is a fundamental part of women's reproductive health care. If you don't want to go to war and you are not professional soldiers, you can have conscientious objection, but not if you are a doctor. We are choosing our profession and we know very well what gynecology is. Everyone has to know, uh, make a termination of pregnancy if the life of a patient is in danger. We are here to help When we are making abortions, we know that this is not a contraception, but we know that this woman will be maybe unhappy uh, that uh, she will terminate her pregnancy in some way don't think about. Experts say that stigma toward abortion providers can discourage abortion. And that conscientious objection can lead to an unspoken peer pressure among medical staff. Nada Paratovic, who founded the Brave Sisters, puts a large part of the blame on the Catholic Church. It's exercised more and more influence over Croatia's medical institutions since the country broke away from Yugoslavia in 1991. 30 years of the influence of the Catholic Church brought us to these days where uh, abortion is stigmatized in our society. But also we have this neoconservative movement. 
Around 100 men kneel on cushions or pieces of cardboard, heads bent, saying decades of the rosary. Some hold pictures of the Virgin Mary, called kneelers by the locals. The Conservative men's group meets once a month in Zagreb's main square to pray for things like pre-marital abstinence and for men to become spiritual authorities within their families. They also want an absolute ban on abortion, like the church back groups behind the March for Life organised in Zagreb and several other Croatian cities over the summer. The Catholic Church believes human life begins at conception and opposes all forms of abortion. Similar groups have sprung up in Serbia and Poland where reproductive rights are under attack too. A 2021 report from the European Union found connections between such groups. The report also found the groups were financed through several sources, including Christian NGOs and donors in the United States. These conservative groups hold some sway in the Balkan country, where 80% of the population identify as Catholic, and churches are often full on Sundays. But a small, vocal group of counter-protesters watch and make noise from the other side of the square each time the group holds a vigil. Antonia, who is pregnant and holds a sign saying kneel before our rights, wants the kneelers to know that not everyone agrees with them. We need to raise our voices against this kind of attitude because this uh, uh, this would lead us as women, also LGBTIQ community, uh, in very uh, dark times. Like I, I feel that uh, we need to be here to, to show that this is... Uh, just a minority of people that thinks like this uh, and uh, that it's more of us and that we will stand up to what is written in our laws and uh, in our constitution. Jennifer Collins in Croatia for DW. There was one last question I wanted to ask Jennifer Collins, whose report you just heard. If the majority of Croatians support abortion access in some form, then why weren't there more protesters on the pro-choice side? Jennifer said this was something she actually talked to the first woman in her report about, the one who talked about being cursed at by pro-life protesters. Here's what she had to say. Yeah, well, she thinks that part of what's happened in Croatia in the last couple of years around abortion is an increased shaming and increased shaming around being a sexually active person outside of wedlock and and increased shaming about abortion. And that's part of the reason why it's become harder to access and people are less publicly vocal about it. So even in a city like Zagreb, yes, because it, you know, it's it's the capital, but Croatia still feels like a small place. A lot of people know each other. I mean, I can compare it to Ireland, where I'm from. In a small country, there's less anonymity. And people are like a little bit more, we're a little bit more conformist, I think, because there's like everybody kind of knows each other more or something, you know. Mm. But that's an interesting comparison because Ireland has opened up a little more in terms of social norms. And what you're saying is what you saw in Croatia was kind of going in the opposite direction. Yeah, it's interesting because the last 30 years has seen a real liberalization in Ireland. I mean, we got divorced in 95 and homosexuality was decriminalized in that decade as well. And, you know, recently equal marriage and also abortion. And those are all things that we voted for. 
So it's interesting to see how Ireland has become socially more liberal and Croatia. And and this is something that people said to me, a few people, a lot of people I spoke to when I was there, I guess people who are more liberal feel like it's become more and more socially conservative since the country left Yugoslavia and that they're concerned about what they see as a backpedaling of certain rights, you know, or a potential for that. Thanks for talking to us, Jeb. You're more than welcome. It's my pleasure. Jennifer Collins is a Berlin-based reporter for DW. I'm Kathleen Schuster, and this is World in Progress. We'll be right back. On the second half of today's show, we're going to hear stories about women who are blazing their own trail in the pursuit of their dreams. One of these women is named Malit Afawark. She's a young Ethiopian artist, and what makes her story so remarkable is that she's not only putting her own spin on traditional ways of weaving fabric, she's also making a name for her native Ethiopia when it comes to fashion. Antje Dikan sends this report from Addis Ababa. It's presented by Ben Restle. The clothes on display in the Mafi Mafi fashion label showroom could be described as unusual. They are modern blazers with wide sleeves tailored from Ethiopian woven fabrics, men's shirts with colorful embroidered edges, huge woolen scarves that are draped around the shoulders and held in place with a belt. I feel like I bring something new for the industry because the fashion industry was involved in or a lot of designers at that time were making evening wear, you know, for occasions and for weddings. Nothing ready-to-wear or casual wear exists at that time, so that's what I wanted to do. Malit Afewerk founded the fashion label around 10 years ago. She was driven by the idea of making sustainable traditional Ethiopian clothing with a modern twist. In contrast to the cheap clothes produced by underpaid workers in Ethiopia's large factories. Malit Afewerk discovered her passion for design as a teenager. I've always wanted to be a fashion designer, a musician. I wanted to be like an art scene since I was a baby. And then, yeah, I used to, you know, dance. I used to draw. I was that very artistic kid growing up. My first career was actually being a rapper. She became widely known when famous Ethiopian singer Joseph Gebre asked her to rap for him. And this success also opened the door to the fashion industry for her. Being a rapper was completely new, especially for females, so that already gave me attention. And then on top of that, when we created the music video, I designed, you know, something colorful, something different from what we have seen before. So a lot of artists start contacting me to make them, you know, stage closing or for their music videos. So I immediately started dressing local celebrities. 
She has also started working with international artists, such as Damien Marley. Her fashion has been shown on catwalks in Paris and New York, and her label is so successful that Mallet Afwerk has even set up her own production line. She has 65 employees and hopes to expand further. I would say it's just the beginning. So I think for me, African fashion has started getting the attention now. Before, we used to see you know, a lot of international brands taking inspiration from Africa and from all over the world, and then you'd see it in their collection or you know, clothing. But now, you know, like we're, we started seeing more of African brands. After storming the catwalks, Malit Afiwerk hopes to conquer the mainstream as well. She would love to see her designs sported in the streets of major cities like Berlin and New York. Ben Ressler with that report from Antje Dikans. For our next story, we're going to hear from several women who belong to China's LGBTQ community. In China, the state has been cracking down more and more on its LGBTQ citizens over the past decade. But that hasn't stopped these women from creating safe spaces for their community. Evelyn McClafferty has this report from Eva Lambi-Schmidt. In the window of what could be mistaken for a small shop, hidden from view, passers-by can see a motorcycle on display, and behind that, a few foldable chairs set up on the metal floor. There's a small bar, a few drinks. There are photographs on the wall too, portraits of people with captions under them that, together, tell a story of the LGBTQ people in China. But the letters LGBTQ are nowhere to be seen here. That would be too obvious. Officially, as far as the Chinese authorities are concerned, these stories are about women. Feminism, that's okay. But LGBTQ wouldn't be. The things we've put on display here are things we selected beforehand and censored ourselves. 80% of them are actually about women. That's how we were able to make this exhibit possible at all. In this room that's relatively hidden away. We feel like if the authorities don't discover us today, one day, eventually, they might. It's exactly for this reason that this young woman wants to remain anonymous as a way to keep this place safe. In May, she started this place along with some other women around the same time that Beijing's prominent LGBTQ centre, Beitong, was making headlines after closing down. The centre was an advocate for LGBTQ rights and offered advice and support. It really is a shame. There's no way of stopping something like that from happening. We still want to do as much as possible now, and we hope we can create a utopia not just here in China, but all over the world. She's talking about a utopia where love between people, regardless of their gender identity, is simply normal. She looks at the pictures on the wall. One shows two Chinese women kissing in the middle of the street. In the background, passers-by go on about their business. A food delivery man drives past the couple on the scooter. It's her favourite picture. I can feel their kiss, even though it's happening amid the hustle and bustle of everyday life. I don't need to worry about everything that's going on around them. Everyone goes on with their lives as if nothing were happening. They pass by, they deliver food. I wonder if this will ever become normal. It's quite commonplace after all. 
But it's not commonplace in China. Despite the fact that homosexuality was decriminalized in 1997, the topic remains taboo in many families. Some report losing friends after coming out. Discrimination happens at work too, which is why many keep their sexual orientation secret, if they're not heterosexual. The Chinese state has been stepping up crackdowns on the LGBTQ community ever since Xi Jinping came to power a decade ago. At universities, for example, these groups have been shut down, online profiles have been censored, some events have been suspended, and numerous LGBTQ dating apps have been banned. During this year's Pride Month, a number of LGBTQ events were cancelled at the last minute, or took place on a much smaller scale than before. We can't have parades in China, so we run. For the past four years, this woman from Taiwan has organised a six-kilometre LGBTQ international run in Shanghai. She has also asked us not to name her. This year, for the first time, she asked participants not to wear rainbow accessories. She limited the number of runners to 50 because in China, there is no right to assembly. When we were organising this event, we didn't make any posters. The message would spread too easily. It would draw too much attention. We didn't post it in online networks that are public. Word spread by word of mouth from the get-go and went on that way until the event. That's why she says she didn't have high expectations this year. Everyone was being really careful, but then in the end, 45 people showed up. And some even dared to put on a rainbow headband or a pin. There was even a rainbow flag. It was really moving, and it showed me that it was a success. We were really excited and touched. But she doesn't want to say on the record whether or not there were any consequences. That report from Eva Lambie-Schmidt was presented by Evelyn McClafferty. We'll be right back after this message from DW. They're literally everywhere these days. But whether you like them or not, modern-day life would be impossible without plastics. The growth trajectory of plastics is just, quite frankly, scary. By 2050, we will produce between three to four times as much plastics as we're producing today. But with growing production comes increased pollution. Plastic waste is accumulating in our oceans, rivers and forests at an alarming rate. And microplastics is not just being found in our food and water, but also in our bodies. The idea that microplastics could cross the blood-brain barrier, it's just, it makes you shudder. So in this brand new series, I'll be taking a closer look at how we got here. I really think plastics is a tangible expression of all that is wrong with capitalism. And what's keeping us on the plastic drip? The core underlying fundamental problem to solve in the plastic world is that we live in a world where virgin plastic, new plastic, is cheaper than high-quality recycled plastic. I'll also be exploring some impressive solutions that are on the table to clean up our plastic mess. From filtering microplastics out of water... The process is quite simple. You just add this adsorbent into the water, mix it 100%, remove all of the microplastic happens within one hour. 
to upcycling plastics into ingredients that we can actually eat. I wanted to break that plastic into its constituent um, parts, which are called monomers, and I took one of these monomers and converted it into the compound called vanillin. On the Green Fence's new series on the world's growing plastic problem and solutions, coming to you wherever you get your podcasts. This is the story of the biggest cannabis scam ever. This is the story of Juicy Fields. I've lost 20k. I had 350,000 euros in the account. And the scam might just continue. We have owners that sometimes like to be flashy, hence why they like cannabis and crypto. This is Cannabis Cowboys, a story about big dreams, juicy money, and never-ending hype. Today's episode of World in Progress was produced by Vipka Tegtmaya and me, Kathleen Schuster. Our sound engineer was Thomas Schmidt. You can listen back to this and past episodes of World in Progress on our website, dw.com. We're also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Want to get in touch with us? Well, send us an email at worldinprogress at dw.com. I'm Kathleen Schuster. That's it for World in Progress. Be sure to listen in next week for more great stories from around the world. World in Progress is produced by DW in Bonn, Germany.